This is a CBC podcast. It's a tense and frightening time. The horrific attacks on Israel by Hamas, days of bombing, and Israel telling more than a million people to flee northern Gaza. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we are going to take a look at some of the big questions. Where does the war between Israel and Hamas lead? How can the world keep the situation from getting even worse? I'll speak with former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney about his experience bringing countries together in a time of crisis. We'll talk with diplomats who have worked in the region, and we'll hear about the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding right now. The House is now in session. This episode of The House first aired Saturday morning. The situation in the Middle East is rapidly evolving. You can find all the latest at cbcnews.ca. Last Saturday's attacks on Israel by Hamas were devastating. The details, horrifying. And some 150 people were taken hostage. World leaders in the West were quick to voice steadfast support for Israel and forcefully condemn Hamas. These guys make, uh, they, they make Al-Qaeda look pure. They're pure, they're pure evil. As I said from the beginning, the United States, make no mistake about it, stands with Israel. The United States stands with Israel. We stand with Israel. The United Kingdom stands with Israel against this terrorism today, tomorrow, and always. Israel has the right to defend itself in accordance with international law. And uh, we continue uh, to look for ways to support civilians uh, in uh, both uh, Palestinian and Israelis uh, and ensure that uh, as many civilians as possible are kept safe during this terrible conflict that is the responsibility and the fault of the terrorist organization known as Hamas. Israel's response a complete siege of Gaza. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he considers every Hamas member a dead man. And on Friday, a warning for over one million Palestinians in Gaza to evacuate. Here's a spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces. We're trying to do the right thing here. We're at war. We don't want the civilians to be hurt. And uh, we are telling them, go south of the Gaza River, and there you will be safer than you are in Gaza City. The Secretary General of the United Nations warned that the evacuation itself is a disaster waiting to happen. Moving more than one million people across a densely populated war zone to a place with no food, water or accommodation, when the entire territory is under siege, is extremely dangerous and in some cases simply not possible. We're going to talk about what the world can do in a moment, but we're going to start with the evolving humanitarian situation in Gaza. Ali Azaki works for the World Food Program. We reached her late Friday in Cairo. Thank you for making time for this conversation. Thank you for having me, Catherine. What has happened in Gaza since Israel's military set this 24-hour deadline for people in the north to leave? So honestly, the situation really is devastating. And I mean, it was devastating even before this decision. Uh, We were looking at almost half a million people who were being displaced. And then, you know, we we woke up to the news that now a million people are being asked to leave their homes. Of course, these people are leaving without any of their food or, or water or even basic necessities or supplies. 
And so um, we're expecting the numbers of displacement to be increasing significantly. And of course, there's this question of where will these people go? So they've been asked to move to the south of Gaza and there are shelters there. There are designated UN shelters that were already overcrowded. There are shops there that have already been reported to, to be destroyed or damaged. So this is going to severely impact you know, their well-being and their ability to access basic supplies and basic needs. Tell me what access to those basic needs, including food, has been like this week. Because, of course, we know as part of Israel's complete siege, as, as officials were putting it, in response to Hamas, they cut off access to uh, food, water, electricity. Yes. Well, we have been able to provide, you know, emergency assistance for people uh, using the existing stocks that were already in Gaza uh, before the the violence and and hostilities started. But these stocks are going to run out very, very soon. So when, when it first started, we were saying we're expecting the stocks to last for at least two weeks the days um, went for by, and, and of course, more and shops have been damaged, factories have been damaged. So we have um, five mills that we work with in Gaza providing wheat flour. Now only one of them is operational. And so we were relying on these existing food distribution networks and systems to be able to provide the emergency food. We were able to reach more than half a million people since uh, in the past five days. But we're not sure that this is going to be able to continue. Now we're looking at maybe a few days before we might not be able to to continue providing this assistance. So what is your best hope? And understanding that, of course, all of this is happening along with the evacuation order, along with the bombardments. What is your best hope to ensure that civilians will still have access to food in the coming days? Well, First of all, we need to ensure that these people are are safe and protected. You know, they're they're being asked to to leave. We need to ensure that their passage is is safe. And more than ever, we need to ensure humanitarian access to be able to provide the support that these people need. We need to make sure that we can bring in humanitarian supplies, food, water, healthcare, everything that they need, and we need to make sure that we're able to bring in staff also to support them. And once these supplies come in, we need to make sure that there's going to be safe access for us to be distributing this inside Gaza as well. You talk about safe access. Several aid workers have been killed over the course of the last week. How has that affected your ability to help people? It's honestly unimaginable. I mean, we have staff in in Gaza that we're all worried about day and night. You know, following the the orders, we have uh, been asked to to relocate them into the south of Gaza, and thankfully, as of this morning, it was confirmed that they were all be able to to be relocated. But most of the days and most of the times, we're not even able to reach them. They don't have electricity. They don't have access. Some of them are residing in shelters, and some of them are with their families. And it's it's really it's incredible because these people are putting their lives at risk to make sure that they're helping the people in need, while they themselves are also facing displacement. They're also worried about their loved ones and their families. And of course, as you mentioned, some have lost their lives. It's really a humanitarian disaster. Have you had to question whether, in fact, I mean, obviously there's the question of just being able to get out um, 
But as you look at the medium and longer term, whether you'll be able to continue providing assistance. So I can tell you that we are doing everything that we can uh, at all times, you know, around the clock. So we are planning to pre-position food stocks around the region for any possible access that we might get from from any side or, or any any way that we're able to do this. We're working with the bakeries that are still operating. We're working with the few shops that are still operating to make sure that, you know, if there is existing food stock, people are still able to reach it. And we're doing everything we can to make sure that we reach around 800,000 people. So this was the initial plan. We plan to reach 800,000 people. And um, and we hope that we're able to do this um, because, I mean, I don't even want to imagine what would happen if we can't. So you are pre-positioning. You are hoping for a humanitarian corridor. What beyond that do you need from the international community? Well, we really need the international community to come together and really ensure and ask for an end to these hostilities We need to make sure these civilians are protected. We need to make sure that they're able to access basic needs like food and water. This is really the most important ask. We're ready. We're ready to to step in and support. We just need to make sure that we have the access and it's safe and unimpeded for us to bring in the supplies, to bring in the staff and to carry this out. Alia, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. That's Ali Azaki of the World Food Program. I spoke to her Friday evening. We reached her in Cairo. So where do Canada and the international community fit in? Canada's Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie is in the region visiting Israel Friday. And U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a high-profile trip this week, too. How are we even to understand this? to digest this, and yet, at the same time, at the same time that we've been shocked by the depravity of Hamas, we've also been inspired by the bravery of Israel's citizens. We must provide an alternative to the vision of violence and fear, nihilism and terror presented by Hamas. That is what the United States will do, standing with Israel, to talk about what other countries can and should do. I spoke on Friday with Brian Mulroney. He played a key role in building international alliances in the first Gulf War. Brian Mulroney, welcome back to the House. Thank you. We have had this horrifying week, these brutal, vicious attacks by Hamas, the taking of hostages. And now, as we are speaking to you, more than a million people are being told to relocate within Gaza for what's anticipated to be a ground invasion by Israel. What are your greatest concerns right now? Well, you know, Catherine, usually in a, an armed conflict, you know, there's, as you look at things, there's room for nuance. Not here. Israel was invaded by Hamas, which is a vile, barbaric terrorist group dedicated to one one thing, one objective, killing Jews. I mean, the depravity of this organization is such that, as, as everybody knows now, they kill babies, children, men, women, the elderly. This is the worst demonstration of Jew hatred since the Holocaust. And so, you know, in a Canadian perspective, I think that Canada can have only one position. Complete blanket support for Israel, 
and uh, unrelenting denunciation of a jihadist criminal group, namely Hamas. What the Israelis are trying to do now is get the, uh, the Palestinians in the area to move so that they're not victimized by what's coming, which is a humanitarian thing to do. But here you've got Hamas arguing the other case, saying, don't, don't move, stay here, get yourself killed. So this is what they're up against, and it's going to have to come right down to the, the destruction of Hamas. And yet, sir, there are hundreds, more than a thousand civilians uh, in Gaza who have already been killed by the bombings. The United Nations has said that this effort to move everybody is going to be calamitous. And you have had observers, including the United Nations, saying that the, the, the bombings alone, th- those sieges, are violations of international law. Should Canada be more pointed about that in conversations with Israeli officials? Uh, well, no, I don't agree with that, Catherine. That's nuts. Uh, here you have these people who assaulted, you know, uh, free people walking around a village in a kibbutz and then getting slaughtered for it. And then they run back to uh, to their territory and, and say, you can't touch us and you can't come in and clean the place up uh, because it would be a violation of international law. It's not a violation of international law. They have violated interna- international law. And in fact, after this is over, and it'll be over, and Israel will prevail. When it's over, they should arrest these people, the leadership, and bring them to The Hague and charge them with war crimes, which is what has taken place. In no way am I disputing the, that Hamas has done absolutely horrifying things, but I guess I'm trying to understand whether you believe there is any way to better protect civilians, including children, who are being killed right now in Gaza. Oh, God love them. I, my heart breaks for, for them and for the, the children, the Palestinian children that I see on television. And that's why the Israeli government has uh, asked them to vacate the territory so that they're not affected by what is coming. And what's coming clearly is going to be a military maneuver to clean out the place. And there'd be people who will die in the course of this. And that's why, you know, they want them out of there so they don't get hurt and they don't get killed. But uh, Hamas is saying, stay here, get killed. Well, I think Israel is doing everything that it can. But I'm deeply, deeply sorry and troubled by the fact that this operation is going to involve the death of lots of people. I'd like to lean a little bit on your own experience as prime minister in terms of where the international community can play a role here. During the first Gulf War, you spoke frequently with then-President Bush about building international alliances. You personally reached out to the Egyptian president, for example. What could or, or might the Canadian government be doing right now to help in this situation? Well, you know, the Canadian government's situation is not a, is not a particularly rosy one. You know, uh, we're, we're out of sorts with the Indians, with the Chinese. Uh, I mean, the Americans and the G7 uh, just released a, a communique from the G5, for God's sake, with, with Canada excluded from it. I'll just jump in here, sir, in case um, some people in the audience missed it, that President Biden had a conversation with five countries who are members of the G7. It didn't include Canada 
or Japan uh, yeah. and put out a communique. They, they call that group the Quint. And some observers have said, well, this is a, a group that has been around for a long time. And, and, and it is normal that from time to time they are the ones that get together That's to have nonsense. these conversations. That's nonsense. On, on something like this, why would Canada be excluded? Canada should have been involved in that, particularly given the size of our Jewish community. No, look, this is happening quite often. We were excluded down in the, the deal in Australia. Uh, we were defeated uh, for a Security Council seat at the United Nations. Uh, we've got the Indians in, in complete rupture with us. The Chinese don't want to talk to us. The Americans are, as you can clearly see, are are not as friendly and as supportive as they should be. What would you be doing when we look at your past experience in a in a situation where there is international pressure there is a conflict in the middle east you were making phone calls reaching out to mitran uh, to hosni mubarak what what from your experience can teach us something about what could happen right now well canada can play a very valuable role particularly if the prime minister of canada is seen as perceived to be a very close friend of the President of the United States and working closely with him. That's what happened with President Bush and I, and it happened with President Reagan. Look, when I came in as Prime Minister, there was a G7. We were members of the G7. Then I find out there's a G5 that meets at the Plaza Hotel in New York to deal with monetary matters, and Canada is excluded from it. So I said, well, to hell with this. And I start to campaign. I visit the various leaders and make my case, which I did in in an ultimate presentation at the G7 meeting in Tokyo in 1986. And uh, at the end of my presentation, President Reagan stood up and said, well, if Canada's not a member of this organization, I don't want to be a member either. And and that's, that's what brought us back into the G7, the full G7. You know, you can't sit idly by if things like this are happening in foreign policy. You've got to have the strength and the connections and the influence to make the argument when it is vital. And you can start by by upping your contribution to NATO to 2%. Would you believe that the last government to honor the 2% commitment to NATO was mine? And that was 30 years ago. That's a shame. That's a disgrace. But there have, you, been, there have been liberal and conservative governments since then, Mr. Mulroney. So why, why do you think leaders have made a decision to move away from that target? Uh, look, it's, it's not anybody's particular fault. I think in this case, it's, some, it's the attitude of the entire government, you know, which is shifting perceptibly to the left on a lot of areas and, and makes choices that we want this program at home rather than that obligation internationally. But when the international call comes, people look at you and say, you're not, you haven't been paying your bills. You haven't honored your commitments. We don't want you around. And so Canada has to be very, very careful. Look, we're a much admired and respected country around the world, and we've got lots to give to our fellow citizens. But we have to clean up our act internationally. The, the way you are judged ultimately is not by me saying Canada's great and so on. It's when you decide you're going to run for for a seat on the Security Council. I ran, our, my government ran, we were elected overwhelmingly. Kretschan was elected overwhelmingly. Harper was defeated by Portugal. Mm. And Trudeau was defeated by Ireland, for God's sake. 
So you've got to look in the mirror when those things happen and say, you know, I better, I better get back in good graces with the rest of the world because they, they're now ignoring Canada. They mm-hmm. appear to be ignoring Canada, obviously. And they don't have much time for our opinions. And so that leaves us without influence. So what, sir, if you were prime minister right now, what would you be doing? I mean, Melanie Jolie uh, is in Israel on Friday. She's visiting uh, Jordan as well. Canada is obviously making some efforts to connect. What more do you think the Canadian government ought to do? Well, I think uh, Melanie Jolie is doing the right thing, and I think she's a good minister. But, you know, she doesn't sway the foreign policy of the entire government. It's a, it's a huge operation. Uh, so she's doing the right thing. She's doing what she can. But our role is very limited. This, what is happening in the Middle East right now, it feels like a potentially seismic shift. You experienced some incredible shifts while you were prime minister. You were prime minister as apartheid ended in South Africa, as the Cold War ended. I wonder what some of the greatest lessons were that you took away from those major shifts. Well, what, what, what you need is decisive leadership. You can't horse around in something like this. And you must, from a position of Canada, Canadian Prime Minister, you must have worked on and developed excellent friendships and relationships with the President of the United States. Anybody who thinks that you can go along by yourself as the Prime Minister of Canada and do great things alone is, I think, mistaken. I mean, this is an alliance, and, and part of Canada's great strength traditionally has come from the fact that the perception in the world and the rest of the world was that we had an intimate association with the President of the United States and had unlimited access to the Oval Office, which gave us a series of privileges that other countries around the world admired and respected. And when you don't have that, you're off on your own. So, uh, one thing, another thing that I did notice, of course, was that and it's going to happen now. Once the Israelis begin their cleanup operation in Gaza, the tide is going to turn. The tide of public opinion is going to turn as as kids are hurt and killed, and and the population is is decimated. The public opinion around the world is going to shift against Israel, and that's why we have to stand up for Israel. Because it's going to happen, and it, but it doesn't change the fact that Israel was the innocent victim here, and and uh, we owe it to them and to the Jewish populations who have uh, helped so much in Canada. We have to defend them at this moment. Former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. Bye bye now. I'm Catherine Cullen, and you are listening to the House from CBC Radio. We'll talk about the impact this might have on the situation in Ukraine in a moment. But first, what is the best hope of preventing this crisis from getting even worse? And is there a danger that this becomes a much bigger regional war? On Friday, we reached two former diplomats who worked in the Middle East. Arif Lalani served as Canada's ambassador to Jordan, Iraq and the United Arab Emirates. He is now a distinguished fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Daniel Kurtzer is a former U.S. ambassador to Israel and Egypt, now a professor of Middle East Policy Studies at Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Thank you both for joining me. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, we have seen warnings from Hezbollah that they are willing to join Hamas. There's the question of Iran, those who have funded Hamas. What 
is the greatest risk of escalation here? And Arif Lalani, I'll start with you. Well, I think I'm very worried in the short term and in the next few days and and maybe more optimistic in the medium term. But in the short term, I think there is a danger that in the West Bank, uh, Palestinians themselves, I think, rise up. I think there's a danger in the north that Hezbollah joins the the fight in a, in a bigger way than they have been, uh, and that this quickly spirals out of control for Israel and, and therefore for the rest of us. So I really do think the next few days are are crucial, and, and it could get out of hand. Daniel Kurtzer? I agree entirely. Uh, the escalatory uh, scenarios are severe. Hezbollah is a much more uh, ambitious, much stronger organization than Hamas has ever been. Uh, Israel has been prepared for quite some time for Hezbollah to do what Hamas did, so that if Hezbollah enters this fray, you'll have a two-front war of great uh, significance. Uh, I think we all should be quite worried. We've seen U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the region, Canada's foreign minister, and several others, including Germany, there as well. Daniel Kurtzer, what can they hope to accomplish right now? Well, I think Blinken is carrying at least uh, two messages. One, to reassure Israel, as President Biden did in his speech a few days ago, that the United States stands firmly uh, behind Israel and understands and supports Israel's efforts to deal with the threat of Hamas. But I think the second message, which is part of the quiet diplomacy, is to uh, try to deal with the significance of the humanitarian crisis that is being caused as a result of Israeli bombing and will only be exacerbated by an Israeli ground operation. It's hard to talk about this in public, and I think Blinken will probably remain relatively quiet. But uh, Israel, I think, needs to be made aware that the narrative will change overnight with pictures out of Gaza that, that show humanitarian distress. It's hard to do because uh, what, what do you do with a population that is essentially being hostage, being held hostage by Hamas, uh, being used as human shields with Hamas uh, in hospitals, schools, and UN buildings? But I think that's what uh, the Blinken quiet diplomacy is all about. Arif Lalani, we heard a few moments ago from Brian Mulroney that Canada, in his opinion, does not have a lot of influence right now. But do you think that Canada can meaningfully contribute to uh, the kinds of things that Daniel Kurtzer was just describing? I think Canada can. But if I may, I just wanted to, to reinforce something Daniel just said. I do think it's very important that what happens in Gaza in the next couple of days is crucial to whether this conflict escalates. I think it's very important that the advice that is being given in private is that now is the time to be methodical, to be deliberate in punishing Hamas, and not to be indiscriminate. And I think that's what governments need to do at this time, is balance the need to punish Hamas, but not get into the territory of collective punishment or collective injustice, because that will escalate. And I think part of the intel failure that people have been speaking about is underestimating how close Hamas and Hezbollah have become in the past few years. So I would just add that cautionary tale to what Daniel has said. And I think Canada's influence is, you know, frankly, it's limited. We haven't engaged the region at at a personal level 
that is so crucial, particularly in that region. So I'm very pleased that Minister Jolie is in the region quickly. I think that's the right thing to do. And I'm hoping that in private, she's giving the same counsel that, that, that Daniel and I are speaking about. And I think there's a bigger role that Canada can play, or maybe a more important role that we can play, is starting to lay out the thinking and, and the groundwork of what happens in the medium term, because it's clear that whatever military operation happens in Gaza, it's not going to be a permanent solution. It's just going to buy some time. And so what do you do in that time? What do you do in the one or two years that maybe this might buy you? You have to figure out a Palestinian track to revive the Palestinian track. Daniel Kurtzer, I very much want to engage with that question about the path forward. But let me also ask you, is it sensible for Canadians to be talking about a role for Canada here? Well, Canada actually has always had a role. Uh, Just one historical note, after the uh, 1991 Madrid Peace Conference, Canada became the shepherd of the refugee working group and a member of the steering group of the entire process. And the United States and Russia at that time, which were the co-sponsors, called on Canada because of its historical role and its capabilities in regard to uh, several of these issues, refugee matters and others as well. So uh, historically, Canada is a player. I can't speak to the current context of Canadian politics, but I hope that uh, Canada can join multilateral efforts, uh, probably led by the United States, to deal with uh, several of these issues. One is the humanitarian distress. Uh, Number two is, of course, uh, the question of the hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. And then number three, as was just suggested, trying to frame a post-war outcome which in the first instance rebuilds Gaza and in the second instance maybe gets us back on track uh, to talk peace. Are there Middle Eastern countries or perhaps which countries in the Middle East might have the most leverage to de-escalate the conflict, Daniel Kurtzer? Well, right now I think all eyes are turned on uh, Qatar, Turkey and uh, Egypt Uh, The three of them have in the past uh, played this role of mediating and trying to deal with both sides. They both have relations. Egypt may be in the most difficult position right now because while it does have interests and concerns in Gaza, it frankly doesn't want to be the place where a large uh, number of refugees find uh, refuge. Uh, And so they're going to be in a very delicate position of balancing their interest in bringing this conflict uh, down uh, to an end, but also not wanting to be, uh, you know, the place where refugees find uh, a temporary home. Qatar, which houses the Hamas political leadership, Turkey, which has been supportive of Hamas in the past, may be in the best position to try to bring Hamas to some sensibility with regard, in the first instance, to women and children held hostage but more generally to trying to bring a kind of a devolution of this conflict and a prevention of it spreading wider. Arif Lalani, Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed that Israel is going to crush and destroy Hamas. Should we be thinking about what might replace it? It's a really good question. So I think whatever, it, it is kind of a, a central question. Who will run Gaza? Hamas is unacceptable. 
The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, frankly, has been ineffective, uh, frankly, incompetent. So what will it be? Will it be a UN administration? Will it be something a bit more creative and a bit more muscular? I used to work on the Bosnia file where we had an office of the high representative, which had a very muscular mandate to try and really run the, the territory while other political issues were resolved. So I think people need to think creatively about how do you rebuild this society and, and how do you, you know, care for and provide the support the two million people who, as Daniel said, themselves have been held hostage by Hamas and by other circumstances. And there's work there that I think Canada and some other countries, maybe Norway uh, and, and others, could be doing right now to start to lay the, the groundwork for that. Daniel, in a conversation where optimistically we are talking about rebuilding and just the basic well-being of people, can peace be part of, of that conversation at this moment? That word seems so far away. Well, unfortunately, it is far away and uh, probably not on anyone's minds right now. But without that pathway, however distant it is, why are these parties going to war? One always assumes that in the classic definition, war is an extension of diplomacy by other means. And if all they're doing is killing each other and inflicting you know, horrible humanitarian distress on each other, then we're just bound to see this happen again and again. Already we've seen since 2006 five such engagements, this being the most serious by far. But uh, are we fated to see yet another such horror show a few years from now if we don't start thinking about peace? Now, the reality is there are first orders of business. Uh, Gaza reconstruction, the Palestinian national movement has to figure out what it wants from itself and whether or not it's ready to disgorge Hamas, Islamic Jihad from its midst. You know, Israel can decapitate the current leadership of Hamas, but you can't destroy a movement. That's up to the Palestinian national movement to decide which direction it wants to go. So there's a lot to do, but peace has to be out there on the horizon or else uh, we're fated to repeat what we're seeing now. Could I just jump in on one point? I, I agree with everything Daniel said, but I think our first order of business, I don't think we should move so quickly past the humanitarian imperative right now in the next hours, in the next days, to limit how indiscriminate whatever action Israel is going to take. It's not in Israel's interest that this gets out of control. Uh, as Daniel said, we've been at this five times before. So it, it's a time to punish Hamas but not to punish the, the two million people that are also suffering at the hands of Hamas. Really appreciate this conversation with both of you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you. Arif Lalani is a former Canadian ambassador to Jordan, Iraq, and the United Arab Emirates. Daniel Kurtzer served as U.S. ambassador to Israel and Egypt. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky already has a war on his hands. But this week, he spoke out about the brutal attack on Israel. Terrorists like Putin 
or like Hamas, seek to hold free and democratic nations as hostages. And they want power over those who seek freedom. The terrorists will not change. They just must lose. Yet the war in the Middle East will also inevitably pull attention away from Russia's war on Ukraine. To talk about how all of this might play out, I spoke with Larissa Galadza. She just wrapped up four years as Canada's ambassador to Ukraine. Welcome to the House. Thank you for having me. I want to start with what we just heard a moment ago from uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He's been so vocal in his support of Israel. He's offered to visit. Why do you think he's making that a priority right now? In the first instance, I think that is a very personal statement that he has made that he may visit, but also that he encourages other leaders. Why? Because he doesn't want Israel to feel alone. And I think that's a reflection on how important it was for him uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 22, that the world stood up, that people came, that Ukraine's friends and partners were present to Ukraine and to him personally. Um, And so I think he's very much feeling what Israelis uh, are feeling and is reaching out in the way that he knows how. Everyone sit up, stand up, pay attention. Zelensky has talked about the fear. Of course, he said he's worried that this is going to draw attention and support away from Ukraine. He, he says he believes Russia is counting on it. Is there any way to stop that? No doubt, two major wars in the world right now uh, are going to divide the attention. There's only so many hours in the day, and the same countries that have supported Ukraine so steadfastly are very interested in peace in the Middle East as well. So, yes, uh, there will attention will need to be paid now in an urgent way um, to what's happening in, in Israel. But luckily, uh, Ukraine over uh, the last year and a half has put in place mechanisms, its allies have put in place mechanisms that are now, I hate to call it, a well-oiled machine for talking about the financial support, the humanitarian support, the military support. And all of that is in place and it will continue to function as we saw yesterday or the day before in uh, in Germany, where um, the Defense Consultative Group continues to get together. You say well-oiled machine, but then people will see things like the uh, tweet from Republican Senator Josh Hawley, who said, any funding for Ukraine should be redirected to Israel immediately. How do you react to that? I think there are many voices out there saying many things. The policy decisions uh, that are articulated by the leadership of the country are are the important ones to pay attention to. Um, And a good debate in a country, uh, I think, is also healthy. You talk about the leadership, and it's hard not to look ahead to the next U.S. election. I mean, do do you fear that the Republicans are going to come into power and and that that will just pull the carpet right out from from under support for Ukraine? I think that all the countries supporting Ukraine need to be looking forward at how they do that. Uh, And that's not just a government work, that's the work of parliaments and congresses. And uh, we all recognize that this is going to take a while. And there are things that politicians will say to get reelected, there are elected, uh, and there's the reality of the situation. And and sometimes uh, those two things need to be reconciled. Let's talk about 
the consequences if indeed there is some kind of flagging of support for Ukraine. You're, you're intimately aware of what the country needs. What, what would you worry about if, if the support started to wane? One of President Zelensky's biggest efforts right now is on rallying support for his 10-point peace formula. He has very, I think, accurately listed 10 areas, 10 domains that need discussion, that need support in order to ensure a sustainable peace in Ukraine. It runs everything from Russian troops leaving the country to justice and accountability for the war crimes uh, that were committed to ecological security and 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 the safety of of the of the environment and to nuclear security like everything and what's really important for him is the political buy in that these things are important and you see him traveling all over the world speaking to old friends new friends, friends that they don't know are friends yet, to try to make sure that the world understands what it's going to take to have sustainable peace in Europe. And I think that that is going to continue because that is something that he will drive uh, with the backing of his entire population because they know that that is key to their existence. I don't think that will flag. You didn't know, obviously, when you started that you would find yourself in the middle of a full-scale war. I wonder how your experience changed your sense of diplomacy. I think we're all realizing that in this world we have to be ready for anything, but I kind of had to figure that out on, yeah. the, on, the, on the fly and really took pride in what Canada is able to do in the world. When Russia invaded, we were ready. The systems that... Canada has to spring into action to help Canadians, to keep its employees safe, uh, all worked, and they all worked really well. We also, on the policy side, were ready with announcements before the invasion and after invasion. We had visits. Uh, we were able to do things in very, very, very constrained and high-security environment that are important to diplomacy, and we could do it. We could do it. It's where there's a will, there's a way. And uh, we've, we've figured it all out. And that leaves me with a great sense of pride in my colleagues uh, and in, in our country and what, 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 who we are in Ukraine. What do you think is the best hope for peace in Ukraine right now? The best hope for peace is that Ukrainians don't lose their resolve and I don't for a minute believe that they will, and that Ukraine's friends and partners keep up the support knowing that they have picked the right side in this war and knowing that compromise will not end it. I want to close by asking you a bigger picture question about this moment that we find ourselves in globally. I was interested to learn that one of your previous roles was Director General of Peace and Stabilization at Global Affairs Canada. Does it feel to you like we are losing our grip on peace and stability in the world right now? It's certainly clear that the institutions and mechanisms that kept the world predictable uh, for decades uh, is experiencing extreme strain, if not broken. Um, and 
that means that we are living in a time of uncertainty and it's compounded by the fact that we've got, you know, a climate crisis, uncertainty in all aspects of, of our life. And so that doesn't feel good. At the same time, we have institutions that are working really, really well. And the the unity that NATO has shown, the unity that the EU has shown, sure, there are divergences, different opinions within those uh, those institutions, those organizations. But the mechanisms to reconcile those differences are there, and that's the most important thing, and they are sticking. Our major alliances, our major partnerships in the world remain strong, and that gives me hope that we'll be able to figure out the next 80 years as well. Larissa Glads, I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Larissa Galadza just finished her post as Canada's ambassador to Ukraine. Well, that is almost it for us this week. But before we go, we wanted to bring you an update on last week's special program about the toxic drug crisis in Thunder Bay. We introduced you to Carolyn Carl. Her daughter died of a drug overdose. She was at a charity event that she organized to fundraise for a women's addiction recovery facility. Well, Carolyn told us that her foundation raised more than $50,000. They're now looking for a house for the facility. Our senior producer, Jennifer Chevalier, is here now with some of the other emails we received. Hey, Jennifer. Hi. So a number of other parents wrote to us after last week's show to share their family's stories of addiction, and we're really, really grateful that they took the time to share those stories. Mm-hmm. Dee Slater in Maple Ridge, B.C., told us about her son, Andrew, who died of a toxic drug overdose three years ago. She shared how all they're left with is what she called a huge vacuum in our lives and a never-ending ache and sadness that he's gone. And Maria Rantanen also lost her son. And she wrote, I can't believe six people die every day in BC, 21 in Canada, and there isn't more public outrage and emergency action from governments. We appreciate everyone who is sharing their stories with us. And we are going to stay focused on this issue. Soon we're going to speak to the Federal Addictions and Mental Health Minister, Yara Sachs. Listeners also suggested, as I understand it, some specific policies that they wanted to know more about. What did they say? Well, Rory James Ford in Toronto says he's a drug user and he wrote, we must decriminalize the use of drugs because, he said, the purchasing of substances under a regulated system can keep people from dying. Then Beth Atwood in Kitchener, Ontario, says her she has family members that are addicted to drugs. She says affordable housing is part of the puzzle and she'd also like to see a law that helps parents get help for their family members who are struggling with addiction. Arletta Murray is also in Kitchener. She has family members who struggle with addiction and now volunteers with a support group for bereaved families. She pointed to recent action taken by the U.S. to sanction Chinese companies that manufacture and export the chemicals that go into making fentanyl. And she says she's very disappointed that Canada is not joining the U.S. in sanctioning these same firms and individuals. Now, we are going to dig into that issue as well as others on upcoming shows. But before I let you go, we heard from residents of Thunder Bay as well. What kind of feedback did they give us? Well, Jason Turgeon is from Thunder Bay, though he left the city for a long time. Now he's back and he says he notices the difference. And he says that Northern Ontario gets left in the cold. He wrote, this city needs much help and it's scary. And Dr. Ian Dobson wrote in to say he's part of a surgical team that treats the consequences of illicit drug injection. And he gave examples like washing out infected wounds, dealing with sepsis, and in severe cases, amputating limbs. He wrote, despite small victories, most days we feel as if we're at the leading edge of a raging forest fire. 
swatting at the flames while the arsonists at the other end are keeping the blaze going. The reality is that we're falling behind quickly, and Thunder Bay is not unique in this regard. The number of young people developing new drug addiction problems far exceeds the number which we're able to rehabilitate. Obviously, there is a lot more to talk about with this issue. We are going to continue following the toxic drug crisis this season. Thanks for this, Jennifer. You're welcome. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I am Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.